just when you thought coming to the sea you couldn't get any weirder. <laughs> if you're new, welcome. Uh, you've come at a very unusual time, uh, a time where we're starting a new series. It's only going for three weeks in the semester in a book of the Bible called Leviticus. And as you've already seen, it raises lots of questions. Uh, because let's face it, uh, for those of us who are any familiar with the Bible at all, Leviticus is the book of the Bible where all Bible reading plans come to die. Every New Year's resolution, I think, starts really well. Genesis, what a book. God creates the world out of nothing. It all kind of tumbles out, and within two chapters, drama, everything falls apart. Sin and death enter the world. Mankind spreads across the face of the earth, and we see God single-handedly picking people out of that mass for the purposes of redeeming that world and bringing them back to paradise. Genesis, we hit Exodus, and Exodus, the drama continues. Now Israel is in the promise, well, in, in, in slavery in Egypt, but with spectacular power, what God does through a whole bunch of plagues on the nation of Egypt, he brings them out and he rescues them. And there's things like burning bushes and flaming mountains and raining bread, and you get the Ten Commandments. And things are getting really, really interesting. And then comes Leviticus. Page after page after page after page, after page of detailed and tedious instructions about how to make guilt offerings, how to make sin offerings, and how to make grain offerings, whatever they are, and how to anoint priests, and what to do if you have a discharge, and what you have to do if you have this sort of discharge and that sort of discharge. And we get to this point where, you know, we've kind of looked at this whole long reading in chapter 15, and we just kind of start scratching our head and going, what is going on here? This is either really confusing... Or in some of those parts that we just heard read very bravely by our brother, Gabby, you kind of go, this is actually offensive, right? Why is this in the Bible? And so we can't help but as we read it, kind of think of it as a bit of irrelevant, almost like that kind of out-of-touch granddad that you might have. Really interesting things to say about politics, but because he thinks World War II is still happening, you kind of just roll your eyes and, and move on and, and, and don't listen. And so what we do is we skip Leviticus, either because we think it has nothing to say, well, because it's so hard to understand that we just kind of throw our hands up in the air and go, you know what, we probably don't need it. Let's just go and read a gospel. But the contention that I want to make to you today, today and over the next two weeks as well, is that if we were to remove Leviticus from our Bibles, we would not be able to understand the Christian gospel. We would not be able to understand just what it is that Jesus did for us. That's how important this book is. It's not irrelevant it's not an impenetrable mystery. It does take work, but it's worth it because it is central to our understanding of the theology of the New Testament as a whole uh, and to the work of Jesus in particular. And so what I really hope we can do over the next couple of weeks is, is turn the lights on in this book uh, and as if we kind of walked into a dark space and discover that Leviticus isn't some kind of weird storage closet off to the side that, you know, grandma's kind of weird old-fashioned stuff is in, but actually realise that this is the central ballroom of the house that gives the shape and, and, and rhyme and reason to everything else that we read. And so with that in mind, let's begin by asking the question, what is Leviticus? Now, we'll simply put Leviticus is an instruction manual. Uh, the Bible, it's made up of 66 books. You've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and they all have different genres. We have biographies, we've got histories, we've got letters, prophecies, songs. Uh, if you were at the CU last year when we did Deuteronomy, you would have found out that Deuteronomy is actually a set of speeches. But here in Leviticus, what we have is an instruction manual. It was given to the people of Israel 
to teach them what they had to do in order to stay in relationship with God. So in the book of Exodus, the book before Leviticus, God saves them. He brings them out of Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with them and he declares to them that he will be their God. They will be his people and he, this is critical, will dwell amongst them. But that had some implications for these new people, the Israelites, because God was holy. And the only way that he would dwell among you as a holy God was if you, his people, were holy as well. We actually see this um, in Leviticus 19, verse 2. Uh, This is, if you will, the summary verse of the whole book. And it's pretty straightforward. God says to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That is the foundational assumption of the book. If you would approach God, you must be holy. And so what God does in the book of Leviticus is he gives them a manual of all the things that they need to do. And he goes into excruciating and tedious detail about how it is that they can be holy. And and most people will think Leviticus, because of all the stuff about sacrifices and priests, it's just a manual for the priests. Uh, but, But it's more than that. It's a manual for every Israelite because it encompasses all of life. And so it's addressed to every person. Uh, The instructions we see in it range from things to eat and not to eat, to sexual relationships and what's appropriate and what's not, all the way through to public holidays and how you should and shouldn't celebrate them. It is a very practical book that spans all of life. It is expansive, it is detailed in what it addresses. And so for that reason alone, actually, it's really hard to get into the book and kind of work out where do we start, how do we do things. So what I want to do is I want to show you how the manual is structured, kind of its kind of parts and sections, uh, to give us kind of a bit of a feel of what we're looking at as we step back. Uh, And broadly speaking, you can break the manual down into four parts. Uh, The first part is in the first seven chapters of the book, and it's all about the offering of sacrifices. Uh, The second part, chapters 8 to 10, it's all about the ordination of priests. You've got sacrifices, you need somebody to sacrifice them, so here are the priests. Uh, Third of all, chapters 11 to 16, we have an extended treatment on uncleanness and its treatment. That's where our reading came from today. Uh, And then finally, the the last part of the book, a large chunk of the book, chapter 17 to 27, uh, is a whole range of instructions on holiness, uh, from personal holiness to national holiness. And one of the things we see as we kind of track through those four parts of the book is that slowly but slowly it unfolds and we see more and more of what it looks like to be the holy people that the holy God requires to dwell amongst. And as a way of understanding Leviticus, we're not going to start at the beginning. We're actually going to start in part three, the part that talks about cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, Because I think once we understand this, we will understand the world of Leviticus and have a framework to put everything else in place. So how do we do that? Well, we start by looking at another key verse in Leviticus, which is Leviticus 10.10. And I'm going to start reading from verse 9. This gives us the principle or the key to unlock the rest of the mysteries of the book. And it says this. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And what this verse shows us as you look at it is it gives us two sets of categories that make sense of the world. Uh, The first is at the beginning of verse 10 there, uh, uh, two sets of categories. The first one is 
um, two states of being. You can either be holy or you can be common. Now, remember our definition of holiness. Uh, and if you've been around to see for a while, you might have seen this in, in various places. To be holy is not first and foremost to be morally pure. Uh, it will include that, but literally it means to be set apart. It's to be reserved for a special use. So, for example, in our house, in, in one of our cupboards, we have a set of towels that we only ever use when guests come and stay. They are our holy towels. Right? Every other towel we have is common because we use it for whatever, but those towels are our set-apart towels. Uh, but the other towels, they're common because, by definition, anything that is set apart, not set apart is common. And so the common things in God's world, it's, they, they were unholy, but, but not in the sense of like morally evil or anything. They just weren't set apart. You could use them forever you wanted. So we have common towels. You want to ask what our common towels get up to since we've had young girls, but they don't have a specific use. Now, everything in the world could be divided into one of these two states of being. So many of the things that are holy, um, as you read through Leviticus, are things like the tabernacle where God dwells. Um, the altar, the golden bowls and plates and, and the instruments that are used, anything to do with the service of God. Uh, it included the priests. Uh, and so the priests, Israelites, were, were holy in a way that the rest of Israel wasn't, even though the nation as a whole was called a holy nation. Uh, the, the rest of the Israelites, they were common. Uh, and so they would also have bowls and plates like they did in the temple. But those bowls and plates you could use for anything. Eat from them, go for it. You want to go outside and dig? Why not? Nobody's going to stop you. They're not holy. They're not to be treated in a special way. Now, the interesting thing between these two states of being is that you could move from the common to the holy. And this happened by a process that we call sanctification or consecration. It was done through a variety of means, depending on what it was. But regardless of what it was, there were certain rituals that could facilitate the movement from one state of being to another. Now, the thing that I've just recognised is that we don't have arrows, and the arrows are going to be pretty important for us. And so what I'm going to do is get us the arrows and get going. So, we're going to do this. Fantastic. Um, as far as I can tell in Leviticus, we don't see a movement where holy things just become common things. You'll see what happens to holy things in, in a little bit. That's the first thing. Two states of being. Uh, the second set is two possible conditions. And the two possible conditions from Leviticus 10.10 are clean and unclean. That's what you could be. Now, cleanness and uncleanness in the Bible, it's sort of a tricky concept to understand because when we hear cleanness, we think cleanliness. So we think hygiene. But, but that's not quite right. To be clean or unclean was a ceremonial status. Uh, and it could change based on a variety of circumstances and actions. Uh, there were some things that were inherently unclean, like certain animals. But, but insofar as humans were concerned, you could be clean or unclean at any given time. Now, say you were clean, you could do certain things that defiled yourself and you would become unclean. Uh, you could defile yourself in a number of ways. Uh, so, for example, you defile yourself when you engaged in morally evil action. So, uh, for example, Leviticus 18 verse 20 do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, that's adultery, and defile yourself with her. Uh, to see, you see there that to have sexual relationships in that way is to pollute yourself and move from clean to unclean. But the confusing thing about Leviticus is that it wasn't just the morally evil actions. 
that could have been amoral things, circumstances and actions that made you unclean. So, for example, Leviticus 11, verse 7, uh, God declares to them that the pig is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Or again, in chapter 15, verse 19, like we saw in the reading, uh, anybody who touches uh, a woman uh, when she is having her period becomes unclean. Uh, that in and of itself is not morally evil. Uh, some people tend to think so and have kind of used Leviticus to justify that, but it's actually just a part of life, and yet still that is something that makes you unclean. Now, if somebody found themselves in this state, they've kind of clean, they, 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 a pig, they hugged their wife, they, they, they had adultery, they could do things uh, to make themselves clean again. Uh, it was through a process that we would call purification or cleansing. Uh, it would usually involve washing yourself and your clothes and then waiting till evening. But for the more serious things, sacrifices of animals were needed. Uh, and the thing to get as we look at these two kind of sets of categories, the two states of being, the two possible conditions, now, is that these things defined the world of Leviticus and everything that was connected to one another. And if we put them together, we actually then see what lies at the heart of what's going on at the book of Leviticus. It gives us a fundamental principle. So let's combine them and have a look at what this looks like. Now, four possible combinations. And I want to draw your attention to the one that I've got highlighted up there, the common and the clean. Now, the common and the clean uh, was essentially the default condition of the average Israelite. Uh, now, there were some things, as we've seen, that you could do to certain things or people when they became priests, for example, or things that we made to put in the temple, that you could make holy, you sanctify and cleanse them. Uh, but, but generally speaking, you inhabited the common clean box. Now, as you went about your daily business, you would do things or things would happen to you that caused you to become unclean. Uh, now, the reason that that was a problem is because of the underlying principle that underlies this whole system, and it's this. What is holy can never come in contact with what is unclean. And what is unclean must never approach what is holy, because to do so is to profane or desecrate God. So some verse examples, uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verse 11, the high priest, the holiest of the Israelites because of his position, must not enter a place where there is a dead body. Dead bodies are unclean in Leviticus. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother or leave the sanctuary of his God and desecrate it because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. So the holy can't approach the unclean, and, and Leviticus 22, verse 3, the unclean can't approach the holy. So if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean, and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. And so if the holy and the unclean come together, the holy thing is profaned, and so the sanctuary of God, the name of God is profaned, and the perpetrator needs to be cut off from the people of Israel. And what's really interesting is as you look through Leviticus, it's not even direct contact that pollutes the holy things. There's something about the uncleanness of the Israelites just generally, that even as they go through that process of, oh, I'm unclean, so I'll cleanse myself, there's something about their uncleanness that stacks and it contaminates over time the holy sanctuary where God dwells. And so we see in Leviticus 16.16 16, 
that atonement, therefore, is needed on a yearly basis. You have to sacrifice a bunch of things to cleanse the holy things because of this stacking uncleanness. And what it says is that they need to do that, and I quote, because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And so because of that then, the goal of the average Israelite was to live above this line. Because it's only then that you could continue to dwell with God. And it's why verse 31 in our reading today was so important. You must keep the Israelites separate from the things that make them unclean, so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. And what's really interesting, like you're starting to see the system kind of build up, the way that the Israelite camp was set up was designed to teach you that very thing. So, uh, there's the verse there at the end of the reading for you to to think about. At the very centre of the Israelite camp was the tabernacle. This was the holy place. This is where the priests ministered. This is where God dwelled. Uh, It was the place of holiness. Now, around the tabernacle was the camp. This is where the Israelites lived. Uh, And they lived it in such a way that God dwelled in their midst. And this was the place of cleanness. And so long as the community kept themselves clean, they could dwell with God. But there was a third um, kind of zone around the camp, affectionately known as outside the camp. Uh, And this is where the unclean people lived. The people with discharges, the people with skin conditions. And to be outside the camp of God was to be excluded from the presence of God. That you were not in relationship with him, and so therefore you could not have the blessings that come from that relationship. And so everything about your life was geared towards living within that box, living above that line, because it was only then that you could continue to dwell with God and benefit from it. That's the world of Leviticus, pretty full on, right? But that's how they understood the world. That's how God set up the system. And on one level, I want to say, as we kind of think about that, it makes sense, right? You must be holy because God is holy. And if that's the case, then it's happy families and and, and things work out. But like we've already seen, what makes it confusing is the fact that there are some parts of the Levitical system that either seem outrageously arbitrary or downright offensive and wrong. And so how do we make sense of it? Uh, What are we going to do about it? Well, we need to think about what the system was designed to teach. Uh, And I want to begin that by actually asking what the system didn't teach. I've got three things that people think it might be, but it certainly isn't. The first first thing is that the system didn't teach hygiene and health. Some people kind of tend to think uh, that Leviticus, uh, well, we didn't have modern medicine back then. And so what God did is he gave them a whole bunch of unclean and clean rules to keep them healthy. The unclean animals were the ones that carried diseases. There's stuff in there about childbirth and uncleanness. So that that was obviously to prevent infection. The discharges we saw, it's all about stopping the spread of disease. And that sounds right. uh, But the problem is that the data doesn't agree. Uh, There are certainly some things where like health might be a secondary benefit. uh, But some of the clean animals that you were allowed to eat were actually more questionable in terms of disease than some of the unclean ones. And so also, like you kind of got pigs, well, sure, they're unclean. And yes, we know that if you eat kind of raw pig, that's a no-no. But you can cook it in such a way that you don't have that problem. So it's not health and hygiene. Second of all, the system didn't teach like arbitrariness. It wasn't an arbitrary system. Some people kind of look at Leviticus and go, well, we can't really work out how it all connects. And so I know where it is. God has just created a bunch of random kind of stuffy rules uh, to teach Israel how to do what he tells them to do, regardless of what it is. 
You don't need to know the reason why, Israelites. Just do it, because I'm God and you're not. But we've already seen that that can't be the case either, haven't we? Because adultery makes you unclean. And that's not arbitrary. That's something that we know from other parts of the scripture that, that kind of inheres in our moral reality that is true in all times and all places. That is wrong. It's harmful. It breaks things. So the system can't be arbitrary. Thirdly, the system is not morality. Now, that might surprise you because there are lots of moral rules and they're like adultery. Uh, but it can't be all about what's morally right and wrong. Because there is, you know, because otherwise what happens is you start to think, well, hang on, that means that when women menstruate, uh, when people ejaculate and have sex, uh, when you eat bacon, then there's something inherently wrong about that. And so there's a whole system there. But, but, but if you go down that way of thinking, you actually start to ignore other parts of the Bible. So, for example, Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares all foods clean. And so basically what he's saying there, and you'll be you're glad to hear this, there is nothing, nothing inherently wrong with bacon. You can enjoy pig. Like this is one of the great blessings of the new covenant, right? We get to eat the most delicious of all meats. Uh, and so there isn't something that's like inherently wrong with animals. Uh, and so it can't just be entirely, perfectly a system of morality. Uh, and we know that, I think, because intuitively we look at things like sex, we look at things like childbirth, And we go, those are actually good gifts of God. They're life-giving gifts of God. Things that he gives us for our enjoyment. And yet, under the Levitical way of thinking, they still make you unclean. So what do we do with it? If it's not hygiene, if it's not arbitrary, if it's not morality in a strict sense, then what on earth is it? And the answer is that the system is symbolic. Uh, Some of the symbols that we see have a grounding in the moral reality of the world, things like adultery. Others may feel ridiculously arbitrary, but, but they work together as a whole to teach you one thing. And the way that we're going to work out what that one thing is, is to have a bit of fun. And I want to take us through the average week in the life of an Israelite. So I want to introduce you to my fictional family. We have Yeshua. He's an Israelite male from the tribe of Issachar. He has a wife, Naomi, and two as yet unnamed teenage kids because I ran out of like kind of inspiration to think of Jewish names. Uh, but he's got a, a teenage boy and a teenage girl. Now, Yeshua, Issachar, great. It's Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the, the Jewish week. He, Yeshua comes home from working in the fields and he goes to hug his wife as he comes in and greets her and then he stops because she's currently menstruating. And we know that anybody who touches her will be unclean until evening. In fact, she's currently sleeping on a separate bed because anything that she touches and anyone who touches those things then will become unclean as well. Okay, it's Monday now. It's dinner time. Yeshua's being a great husband. He's cleaning up after uh, the meal and he finds a dead mouse in a clay water jar. He now has to dispose of the water and break the jar because they're unclean. And because he's touched the carcass, he needs to wash his clothes and now he's unclean until evening. Uh, It's Tuesday. Uh, Naomi's uh, seven-day period of uncleanness due to her period has come to an end. Fantastic. Uh, But now she needs to um, cleanse herself uh, and present herself, like uh, basically wash her clothes, bathe in water, and she'll be clean again. Uh, Now, it's 
Wednesday night, uh, the day after all that's gone down, um, and, and, and Yeshua and Naomi get a bit amorous now that the, um, the, the period ha- has gone. And so as a consequence, they now need to bathe with water and they'll be unclean until the next day because they did it after evening. And so that's how the, the, the day started. It started at the evening. Uh, and, and one of the other things that happened when, when they, they got a bit amorous is, is there was some cleanup after the deed. That's something that Hollywood never shows you. Uh, it's not straightforward. And so now they need to go in and wash their sheets uh, and, and hang them out and their clothes as well. Um, because they'll be unclean. Uh, let's go to the next day. It's now Thursday, uh, uh, end of a kind of school day, really. Like he, he's, so he's, he's, his son, teenage son wants to go out uh, down to the local river to have some fun with his friends. Uh, but to get there, they have to go through the outside of the camp where people with skin diseases live. And so as they pass through this kind of badlands, there are people in torn clothes with masks over their faces yelling out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so they have to work their way around there to get to where they want to go. It's now Friday, uh, and you thought that all the drama was over. Um, but no, the daughter now gets her period and starts menstruating. So she's unclean for seven days now. And so she has to start using a special stool that they have for that purpose at mealtimes uh, that they've explicitly set aside. Uh, and so like the drama continues. And then on the final day of the week, on the Saturday, Naomi finds that there is some green mold on a cloth that she's left in the kitchen. She now needs to take that cloth to the priest who will isolate it for seven days to see whether or not it's unclean, whether they should just wash it or whether they need to burn it. There's a week in the life of an average Israelite. And here's my question for you and the person next to you. What do you think the Levitical system was designed to teach? Go for it. Alrighty, that should be enough time to kind of discuss and chew on and think about. Um, what does the Levitical system teach? Well, it teaches you one thing. This is what it teaches you. It teaches you that you are not holy. That's the whole point of the system. God is teaching you that you are not holy. That there is something about you and the world that you live in that cuts you off from God. And that's something that we find out as we kind of read through the scriptures is called sin. There is something in our world, something within us that is decidedly unholy, not just in the, okay, you're common and not set aside for a special purpose, but unholy in the sense of uncleanness, in the sense of evil. And the uncleanness that becomes so representative of everything in our world actually becomes the thing that represents us in our natural state before God. And we saw that in, in, in the week of the average Israelite, didn't we? It is impossible to stay clean. In fact, uncleanness is unavoidable, and that's because the system was set up in such a way that uncleanness infects not just some parts of your life, but all parts of your life. And so if you flick through Leviticus, you can see it in chapter 11, it impacts food and what you can and can't eat. Chapter 12, it impacts childbirth and what you have to do after you have a kid. Chapter 13 to 14, it's about skin diseases and boils and burns. Chapter 15, it impacts discharges, whether it's snot or semen or or, or periods. And it's not just that it affects just all parts of life, but it affects all levels of moral status of life. And so it's not just the things that are morally wrong, like adultery, but it's the things that are morally neutral, like eating various animals. And it's the things that are morally good and life-giving, like childbirth and sex. And so no matter where you turn as an Israelite, you can't escape the lesson 
Because God has designed the system in such a way that all of life, whether you're eating or sleeping or working or cleaning or having sex or raising kids or doing things that the law prohibits, you are being taught one thing, that you in your natural state cannot approach God. And what was true ceremonially for the Israelites is true morally for all of us today. Because you and I, as we are, we cannot approach God. Because the holy and the sinful and unclean can never come in contact with each other. Because what results is not just to profane the holy things, but what results is judgment and death. Because God in his holiness consumes that which is unclean. So think about that famous passage in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, the prophet Isaiah, he gets commissioned as a prophet and he gets given this vision. He sees the Lord. And the seraphim call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And what does Isaiah say? He cries out in terror and says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah had learned the lesson. And if any of us would have a relationship with the living God and we would seek his blessing, seek his friendship, claim his favour, then this is the place to start. This is where we begin to understand what the gospel is on about. Because most people think that they can approach God as they are. I think that's the prevailing assumption of our society. Anyone who thinks that there's a God and that he's worth approaching, they think that God not only can but should accept them as they come to him and just go, here I am, we're on good terms. And they kind of pursue that and they just kind of think maybe perhaps that because God is love, well, therefore, I, I, I'm sweet. But, but to just kind of say that statement, God is love, uh, and, and that's it, is to assume that there is nothing else to the story. But one of the things Leviticus shows us is that there's actually far more to the story. Because God is not only love, he is. It's one of the beautiful, wonderful things about our God. But he's also holy. He dwells in inapproachable light. And there is nothing that you can do in your natural state to reach him. And if you would come to God, then you need to first acknowledge that fact. It's like throwing an addiction. The first step to quitting is admitting to the fact that you have a problem. And so the first step to dwelling with God is to admit that you are not able to. And this is fundamental to Christianity, I think. Because God calls us to acknowledge him as God. And in so doing, we have to acknowledge that the problem in the relationship is not God, it's me. That there is something wrong with me that I need to confess, repent of, look to God to save me from. And the reason he does that in part is because he wants us to not have anything to boast about. We saw this earlier in the semester in Ephesians 2. He wants us to come to him acknowledging that we can't bring anything to the table. And that is the kind of the, the, the fertile ground upon which faith blossoms. It is an acknowledgement that we can't do anything to approach God. And of course, that leaves us with a dilemma, doesn't it? Because supposing that we've come to acknowledge our sinfulness, our uncleanness, our inapproachabilityness, and that the problem of our relationship lies not with God but with us, then how can we dwell with God? And more to the point, why on earth would he ever want to dwell with us? Because we can't do it ourselves, we keep falling short. Just like the Israelites, we'll inevitably become unclean again. No matter what we do, no matter how many times we wash ourselves, the taint of sin remains. And what the book of Leviticus teaches us 
is if that we are to dwell with God, we ourselves must be holy. We require purification and cleansing, something the Bible calls atonement. And it's something that we can't bring, but only God can bring. And it's something that he does. He provides the means of becoming holy and dwelling with him. But that's for next week when Tim comes and talks to us about sacrifice.